Well, hello. Thank you for joining us for our class on First and Second Peter. My name is Bob Lawrence, one of the Bible class teachers here at the Anchorage Church of Christ, and I'm glad you've chosen to join us. This week, we are in First Peter chapter 4, and I've brought you to a ancient city in the western part of what's modern-day Turkey called Pergamum. And I brought you here for two reasons. The first is that this ancient city is likely one of the cities to whom Peter sent this letter of First Peter. And the second reason is that the culture of Pergamum it represents the type of culture that Peter was writing about. And I think Peter references uh, part of the culture that we see here in Pergamum. Uh, he references that in today's reading. And, and I think you'll see that. Now, Pergamum, this ancient city that it was in Western Asia, was, was likely one of the cities that Peter wrote to because there was a church here. You'll remember that uh, Peter wrote his letter to the churches that were spread out over the what is now modern-day Turkey, but back then, he says, was spread out over five different regions. There was Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, and then he comes around to uh, Asia and Bithynia, and Pergamum was in that section called Asia, and there was a church here. You can read more about that church in Revelation chapter 2. We know from there in Revelation that uh, this was a city that was given over to the evil one. In fact, they said that the temple to Zeus here in Pergamum was actually called the throne of Satan, and the church here was complimented for being able to live as followers of Christ even in a culture that had been given over to evil. But Pergamon was an amazing city. This was a center of science and technology. It was uh, an early birthplace of medicine. Some of the medicine that was first practiced here in Pergamon uh, reaches into uh, modern era. They had an amazing library, uh, but they were also given over to pagan practices because they worshiped and they revered uh, certain gods. Now, the temple that I'm standing in front of right now is the temple of Dionysus. Now, the Romans would have called Dionysus Bacchus, and so sometimes you hear either the term Dionysus or you hear that name Bacchus, but in both cases, it's referring to the god of wine, the god of agriculture, the god of celebration, and so this particular temple sits right on the edge of the theater in Pergamum because the culture itself valued so highly pleasure and entertainment uh, that they would celebrate in many ways by uh, these, these large drinking festivals uh, that were dedicated to Dionysus and dedicated to entertainment and dedicated to uh, the, uh, the seeking after certain pleasures. But it led into behaviors that eventually the Romans would say was lewd and crass. In fact, by the time this religious celebration of celebrating Dionysus made its way into Rome, and the celebration there was called a, a worship of Bacchus or the Bacchus rites. Uh, many of the Roman writers said uh, these were a hated group of people because in their drunken parties, uh, there would be all kinds of lewd, crass behavior and sexual exploitation of both men and women. And it became something that the Romans tried to outlaw, at least in a public setting. They said, you can worship Bacchus on your own privately, but don't do it in in public, it became, it became something that was pointed out as being destructive uh, to the culture. And you'll see that, I think, in today's reading from First Peter. But I wanted you to have this, this image in mind of a culture 
that was a very advanced culture that had advancements in science and technology and was well known for its library and for its intellectual and its political and really its military prowess. Uh, but they were also given over to evil behaviors so that you could have the maximum pleasure at the maximum intensity for the maximum number of people. And they celebrated this when worshiping Dionysus. And that's what connects us to the passage today in 1 Peter chapter 4, when Peter begins that passage by saying, just as Christ has suffered. Now remember, the whole book of 1 Peter is really a letter written to people who are followers of Christ to remind them that when you choose to follow Christ, you will be misunderstood, you will be maligned, you will be mistreated. And here in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with that same attitude or that same way of thinking, because anyone who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sins. And, and so Peter brings up this idea of sins or this concept of sins. Now, nowadays, when we think of sin, we think of immoral behavior. Uh, but Peter was probably thinking of something more deeply than just what a person does that is wrong. When you think of sins, most people would agree that uh, sin would include things like murder or lying or cheating or infidelity. Uh, but even Christ, when he taught, he said, you know, murder is at one level, but really sin comes from something much deeper. It comes from hate. Um, adultery comes from sin at one level, but really what's at the heart of that is lust in the, in the human heart. A lying you know, is a behavior at one level, but really it comes from dishonesty deep in the human heart. And so we recognize that sin is missing out on something that is not just a, a wrong behavior. It starts much deeper. And that's the way the ancient world understood this word sin. Uh, sin in the ancient world is the word harmartia, and it means to miss the mark. The illustration most often used is that of an archer. Uh, when the archer shoots the arrow, if the archer has practiced and knows their craft well, they will shoot the arrow and the arrow will hit the bullseye. It will hit the intended mark. But if the arrow does not hit the bullseye, then the ancient world would say that the arrow missed the mark. And the word for that was hamartia. And that is the word that was adopted as the word for sin. <clears throat> sin is not so much that you did something wrong. It's that you missed out on doing what was right. It was a missing of the intended mark. And that's the word that Peter uses here to say that when a person follows Christ and they followed Christ to the point that they've experienced that misunderstanding and that being maligned and that being mistreated, the people who have suffered because they follow Christ, he says, they, these are the people who have ceased missing the mark because in their life, they've gotten to the point where they're hitting the intended mark in following Christ and that's the reason uh, that they're suffering. And then Peter makes this interesting statement when he says that for the time has already passed for doing what Gentiles want to do, living, and then listen to his list, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And in that list, uh, Peter could have picked many other sins. It's interesting that he doesn't uh, list things here like murder or lying or cheating. Uh, instead, he makes a very specific list of, of behaviors that point right back to the worship of 
Dionysus, or the worship in Rome of Bacchus, this, this worship of uh, pleasure and of drunkenness and of being not in your right mind, but in, you know, in this stuporous, not right, uh, drug-influenced mind. And Peter points to that and says, you know, that, that, that period of your life is now gone. Now, if you put yourself here in Pergamum, you can, you can hear that letter arriving, and it's being read by people who used to live that way. Used to, to, this letter is being read by people who came to this very theater, who worshiped in this very uh, uh, temple, and who, who uh, participated in the, the, the worship of these gods from this part of the world and their mythology. And, and then they became like those very gods. And that's why Paul's, uh, excuse me, Peter's list ends here by saying uh, that the time's already passed for you to participate in lawless idolatry. Now, the reason he mentions idolatry is because there's a tendency for any human being to start to mirror the things that they worship. In other words, we, we reflect what we revere. And that's a message that's woven throughout all of Scripture. From the very beginning days of Scripture, we are taught to avoid idolatry. And, and at first you might think, well, what's the big deal about somebody worshiping a statue? But it's important to understand that idolatry is not the worship of an object. It is, it is the revering of something that is not real. It's the worship of something that is not God and does not have control. And what we see throughout all of history is that people tend to reflect that which they revere. Now, in this period of time, People worshipped, they revered Zeus and Athena and Dionysus, or in the Roman world, the same names would be Jupiter and Juno, or they would worship Mars, you know, or they would worship Bacchus. And so the people would become like those whom they worshipped. They would become like the adulterous Zeus or the vengeful Juno or the, uh, the, the oppressive Apollo or Mars, or they would become like the drunken, lewd, debaucherous, oppressive, exploiting Dionysus or Bacchus. And that's, that's Peter's point, is the time has passed for you to live out this uh, reflection of what your culture reveres. You're different. You're different now. And the same is true. The same is true today. Uh, we we don't have temples now walking down the street to Zeus or Athena or to Dionysus, uh, but there are things that our culture reveres, and you know this well. That uh, in our culture, if you revere wealth or power or prestige or pleasure, that you'll have a tendency for your whole life to start to reflect whatever it is that you revere. And Peter says to us, the same as he said to the very first readers of this letter, the time has passed for living that way because you revere someone else. You revere something much more powerful and much more life-changing. And that's what brings us to the second part of this passage here in 1 Peter 4 when he says, the end of all things is at hand. That word all things means that the world is about to reach its intended point, its telos, its uh, its intended purpose or end. It's coming. And so for that reason, he says, 
Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So writing a letter to a group of people who worshiped by allowing themselves to be the exact opposite of being in their right mind and being sober-minded. And he says, not true for you because you worship the living God. You be sober-minded. You be self-controlled so that you can pray. And then look at what happens to a life that behaves that way, to a person who follows Christ that way. They, he says, above all, keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, when we get into 2 Peter, we'll talk more about this word love, this word agape. It's, uh, it's not a, a love referring to a feeling uh, or even a friendship. It's, a, it's the deepest form of love that means to give without expecting anything in return or to give without even asking anything in return. And Peter here says that it's followers of Christ who know how to love that way. And it's that kind of love that, quite frankly, covers over all kinds of, and here he uses the word again, missing of the mark. It's love that covers over what happens in a culture when people miss the mark. And that's what you are in your culture. You're of this sort. Those who follow Christ, who have entrusted themselves to God, and you are able to love. And what types of behaviors does that lead to? He says, therefore, we show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each of us have received a gift, we should use that to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And whenever Peter uses that word serve, you have to know that as he's writing that word, he can still feel the hands of Jesus on his feet as Jesus washes his feet. And then Peter can hear those words again, just as I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, now you wash one another's feet. In other words, that's where Peter learned what it means to serve. And here he takes that lesson and he passes it on to you as a follower of Christ. Uh, you become a good steward and you serve one another. And if your gift is speaking, you should speak as one speaking the oracles of God. And if your gift is serving as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything or in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, and then to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. And, and so Peter ends this section by saying, you, just like these Gentiles, just like these ancient pagans who worshipped uh, these, uh, these false gods, just like them, you will reflect what you worship. But unlike them, because you worship the living God, you worship the true Christ, you will come to reflect that which you revere. And so you, unlike the culture around you, become the type of person who serves. You become someone who practices hospitality without grumbling. You, who are able to speak, are able to speak as if sharing the very words of God. And those of you who serve, serve with the strength that God provides. So how are we doing in that? How are you doing? in terms of serving in your community? How, how are you doing in terms of showing hospitality without grumbling? You know, there's a tendency for us to say, oh, I need to serve more. I need to be more hospitable. And so I'm going to develop a program, you know, to do that. Or we'll come up with a serving 
uh, type of activity or program and try to encourage this behavior. But don't miss Peter's point. Peter's point isn't that we need to put more things on the calendar. What he's saying is that the, the change that occurs first is that you follow Christ. And don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you go through when you are maligned, when you are mistreated, when you are misunderstood, when you are persecuted, and in some cases even killed because you chose to follow Christ. Don't be surprised by that. It is the following of Christ that changes who you are and changes what you do. In fact, here in Pergamum, there was a elder who there, probably one of the elders who read this letter when it arrived in Pergamum. Uh, his name was Antipas. And we find out it's not many years later, Antipas ends up being killed, specifically because of his faith in Christ. And the Christians here in Pergamum end up being complimented uh, by God. And you read this in Revelation chapter 2. They're complimented for not giving up on their faith, even when they were going through this this fiery trial. But what made the difference? What made the difference is that they had fully devoted themselves to God and they did not stop doing what was good. And that's how Peter ends chapter four. And this is where we were last week after uh, we were reminded, you're going to be mistreated. You're going to be hated and maligned, but don't give up. And so Peter ends chapter four by saying, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so that's, that's the message for us, is that we will come to reflect what we revere. Therefore, revere God. Entrust your soul to God and continue in your time, in your place, here in our city and in our state and in our part of the world, continue to do good.